What does Christmas cost you? Let me say that again. What does Christmas cost you? Now, I'm not talking about the sum total of what you will spend on presents this year or the time you'll spend hanging Christmas lights or decorating your house or, frankly, even standing in line at Shields or the emotional toll of missing somebody who won't be with you for this season or possibly even for many seasons or probably, possibly even the other side of it, the toll of having to gather to be with everyone else. There's no question from a financial perspective or a time perspective or a stress perspective that this can be the most expensive, busiest, loneliest, and most stress-inducing times of the year. And there's certainly a sermon to be preached there, but this is not it. What does Christmas cost you? To give you a better sense of that question, if you would open up your apps or your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, we're going to spend some time there this morning. And as you find your way there, I would tell you that we're in the second week of a five-week Advent season. If you're unfamiliar with the word Advent, it means to prepare for the King. It's a season of waiting that historically the church has leaned into, that we want to recognize that Jesus came as a baby, and we want to celebrate his first coming while longing and looking for his second coming. That's the heart of Advent, that we would feel a longing for Christ and be moved towards him, celebrating his birth and moving towards his second coming. We want to prepare for the king. That's our hope every season or every year during this season to help our hearts get tuned into the birth of Christ. Get our hearts tuned into the reality that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this year, we're considering the call of Christmas. Not only that we'd be called towards Christ, but that we would see ourselves within the Christmas stories. If you were here last week, Shane started us off well by putting the story of Zechariah before us. The idea of preparing ourselves like Zechariah prepared, like John the Baptist was sent to prepare, that we would be prepared as we go into this season. And this morning we're going to consider the call of Christmas as it pertains to Mary. So Luke 1, verse 26, Bible or app open. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now for the vast majority of you, this is not a new story. In fact, it's an old story that you've probably heard time after time, year after year, and rightfully so. In fact, it's a beautiful story that is worth sharing year after year after year. For just as God sent Gabriel to meet with Zechariah to begin to prepare the world for the Savior, by the way, Shane did a great job of opening that text for us last week, in this passage, God sends Gabriel to a young Israelite girl to give her an absolutely unfathomable task. A task that would require Mary to give up everything, including her body, including her family, 
including her relationships, her social statuses. It would ask her to give up everything to see the Savior come into the world. Now the video we watched gives us some perspective. Uh, a little bit of a, an idea. Parts of it I loved, parts of it I didn't. In the first century Israel, it would have been common for a girl just past puberty to be betrothed. That means, this is the part I didn't like, Mary would have been a girl between 12 and 14, historically speaking. And she would be engaged. In fact, Israelite engagement, first century engagement, was way, was nothing like current engagement. You would enter into a period of betrothal where you were considered married, though you would not consummate your marriage. Really, you would enter into a season where you'd be contractually bound to each other, and the whole goal of it was, and you'll see the tension here, to make sure that the girl didn't show up pregnant. You see the tension? So that she could go into her husband's family pure. It would be a testimony if, that if they could make it through that year, they would get married. And if they didn't, she'd be stoned. That's culture. A girl between 12 and 14, betrothed to a boy likely 16 to 18, who still lives with his parents, and she still lives with hers, waiting the completion of this betrothal so they can begin their married life. And yet it's in the middle of this story that God the Father, in His complete sovereignty, and in His wisdom, and in His glory, had an incredible plan to shake up her life. So He sends Gabriel into her story. This is what He says. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Gabriel begins by greeting her. Hey, how are you? Then he says two significant things. One, that she is favored by God. God really likes you. Let's hold on to that as we keep moving forward. And secondly, Gabriel tells her, the Lord is with you. God's going to be present with you. Let's keep that one in our pocket going forward too as the text continues. Verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what kind of greeting this might be. You can imagine an angel shows up and says, hey, God likes you. Really? I'd be shocked if that happened in my life. She wonders what happens and the angel jumps in immediately and says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Angels always do this. They have to warn people, don't be afraid. Why? Because they're shocking. You might remember all these different moments in the Bible where an angel shows up. My favorite's in Joshua, the book of Joshua, when the commander of the Lord's army appears before Joshua, and he's like, are you with us or against us? These are shocking people. The, the part of the video I leaned into that I liked was just the terror that would have impacted somebody when a bright light and a figure appears out of nothingness into your realm. Because we don't have a category for that. It would have been terrifying. And people are always terrified in the Scriptures. And a second time, Gabriel reminds her that she's found favor with God. 
God not only likes you, He really likes you. And then He brings her some news. This is what He says, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, and He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now I'm sure you've heard this story. And sometimes when we come to these stories, we become so familiar with them that we start to see them as normal. As if it's a typical thing for God to show up in a 13-year-old girl's room and tell her she's pregnant and her son's going to be great. No, and in fact, as I understand it, this happened once. This is not a normal event. It's actually absolutely unfathomable, borderline crazy. But we get used to it. So we start thinking, well, of course Mary went along with this. Of course, this was a normal thing. Why wouldn't she be obedient? If you grew up Catholic like I did, well, she's perfect. She's sinless. Of course she's going to obey. None of those are true. She was a, per- she was a human just like you and me. If you've got a 13-year-old girl in your life, I can't even fathom what her response would have been. This was not normal. Friends, lean into this. God the Father, in His eternal planning, let's be clear about this, God is infinite, meaning there's no beginning, which means I can't talk about the beginning of the plan. That it always was. God in His eternal planning knew that Adam and Eve would sin. One of the funny questions we discussed in seminary as we read through Genesis is, how long does it take Adam and Eve to sin? My seminary professor said it was less than a second. Cool, God, thanks for the... Oh, Apple! God knew that they would sin. And He knew that everyone after them would sin. And He knew when He gave us a set of rules that we wouldn't follow them. That we couldn't be righteous even if we tried our hardest that we on our own merit would always, always be forever separated from God. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't deserve it. We couldn't be good enough. Which means there's nothing we could do about it. So God had a plan. A plan to send His Son to redeem us. A plan that involved sending His Son to die on the cross. To pay the penalty for your sins and mine And we love that plan and we love that story. But don't miss this. This plan involved a young girl. In our culture, she would have been an 8th grader. Now I get it. 13-year-olds in the first century and 13-year-olds in 2017 in America are vastly different. But it involved a young girl who was already engaged and the call involved calling her to be the earthly mother of a baby to whom her husband would not be the father. 
Friends, this was plan A. In fact, this was the only plan that God in eternity put out, put forward to involve this young girl in this plan. Consider that. Process that for a moment. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of more directives in this. We can't push some of these ideas further than the Bible allows us to. But I think it's fair to say that's a pretty hard calling. That, that's not been true for any of us, right? None of us have been given that weight, that measure, that heaviness, and certainly not at a young age. This would be a pretty hard calling And it would have been pretty costly for her. It would change her body. It would change her relationship with her soon-to-be husband. It would change how her friends would look at her. It would change her social status. It would change all the random relatives in your life that like to talk about you behind your back. They had all kinds of fodder now. There's no part of this plan that doesn't completely discombobulate her life. I tried to spell that in my notes. It's a harder word to spell than you think. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of this hard calling, this costly plan that God the Father has for her, and remember this, it's because he liked her. And it's because he was going to be with her. In the middle of all of that, she comes around to it pretty quickly. By verse 38, she's saying, let this happen to me according to your word. Let everything you say happen. By verse 46 through 56, she's worshiping God for what he has done. Now that's extraordinary. It's extraordinary that she's willing in the midst of a a crazy calling to yield her entire life. All of her hopes, all of her dreams, all of her ambition, everything she thought her life could be, she just drops and says, cool God, as your will be done. We'll go with it. Then she worships him. Praise you, Lord, that you would put this on my plate. This is obviously the grace of God. It's obviously the Holy Spirit at work in her. She had a great hope. She had a great hope. Gabriel told her about her hope, and her hope was her son. That's why she walked through this with obedience. She had a great hope, and his name would be Jesus And according to the text, he would be great. But just not a good person. It's much more than that. He says, he will be called the son of the most high. In that culture, that would have been a clear statement. Your son is going to be God. He wasn't just a good person. Your son would be God. He'll be the son of the most high. And he will reign on the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He will be the long-awaited 
Messiah. He'll be the hopes, the dreams, the ambition of all of our people. And His kingdom will never end. Now at the end of this, at the end of all this, that Gabriel puts before her, please note verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now here's the $10 trillion question. She asked how. She didn't ask why. Have you ever noticed that? She asked how will this happen? Not why will this happen? See, in my 21st century sensibilities, when I go through any kind of pain or struggle, I'm wanting to know what God is doing in my life. I'm like, what? why, God? Why would you call me to this? And there's certainly to a degree where God calls us into seasons of discipline where we have been walking in sin and he chastens us like a a good father would discipline his kid. And I could look at it and go, okay, Lord, I'm clearly, I'm being pruned a little because you're trying to do something. I, I get that. But this isn't that. This isn't a disciplined situation. This isn't she blew it as a 12-year-old, so God's taken it out on her. This is God having a plan for her that involves difficulty. And she embraces it. This is God having a plan for her that's different than her own dreams and aspirations. But she willingly accepts it. And steps into it and says, how? How are we going to do this? That doesn't question who he is. It's a question of, how is this going to happen? Which to me is a pretty good question to come from a 13-year-old virgin. How? Well, there's a pretty logical how. And Gabriel explains it to her in verse 35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There's your how. The Holy Spirit. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. You wonder what that looks like? It's this same idea, the same term, the same meaning we pull out of Exodus 40, 34, and 35 when the glory of the Lord came to fill the tabernacle. When God's full presence manifested itself physically to fill the tabernacle, God says, the shadow of the Most High will rest on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Friends, there's the Spirit giving us power. We walk through that in the book of Acts. And then there is this. And this is completely different. This is completely different. N.T. Wright, whom I greatly respect but don't always agree with, describes it this way. The Holy Spirit will come upon Mary, enabling her, as the Spirit always does. That's the normal, right? That's Christian life. We believe that. Holy Spirit works in all of us, giving us power, working through us, allowing us to obey, allowing us to to follow through with what God is giving us to do. The Holy Spirit will come upon Mary, enabling her, 
to do and to be more than she could be by herself. But at the same time, the power of the Most High will overshadow her. This is something different. God himself, the Creator, will surround her completely with his sovereign power. Which is to put it simply, the presence of the Almighty God came to reside in her in the form of an embryo. Ken Geyer, one of my favorite devotional authors, writes this. talks about the Son of God being umbilically tied to a peasant child. What a picture. She didn't ask why. She asked how. And he explains it to her. And then he gives her a sign. Verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. Gabriel, instructed by God the Father, to tell you, even before Mary was pregnant, that he'd been working behind the scenes so that Mary would always know that she was a favored one, so that she would always know that she wasn't alone. We could certainly look back and pour through the Old Testament to see all the prophecy, how God had eternally worked all of these things out so that they would all happen. But as a part of that, all that happening, God had a plan to comfort Mary and to remind her that she wasn't alone. God wanted to give her someone to walk with. And He provided for her. And He wanted her to be reminded. Verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. And nothing is impossible with God. Not a virgin birth or an old barren couple having a child. Nothing is impossible with God. And yet, as I read this text over and over and over again, as I did this week, I find myself seeing and believing and longing to see that this is more than just a promise that we cling to. Now, don't get me wrong. This is absolutely a promise. Nothing is impossible with God. Which means there's no sin He can't call me from. There's no relationship He can't restore. There's no fear He can't remove. There's no pain He can't heal. But friends, that's only one very true and very accurate picture of the statement. For nothing will be impossible with God also calls us out. That there's nothing He can't call us into. Remember Mary. Every aspect of her life was turned upside down as the sovereign, divine will of the Father. Not to punish her. Not to discipline her. Church, we need to lean into this. It was His plan. It was His will. This is a part of our culture, our country, or, or the, the prosperity theologians among us don't believe in whole sections of this Scripture as if God would actually put a really hard, difficult challenge calling before you. And yet, that seems to be the case in the Scriptures. See Jesus. See Mary. 
God puts an extraordinarily difficult plan before her and it's his will that she walk into it. And how does she do it? How does she pursue obedience in the face of an extraordinarily difficult call? She has a great hope. She has a great and a phenomenal and a saving and a redeeming hope. And so she is obedient to it. Verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Friends, I'm not trying to warn any of us of an impending divine pregnancy. Or even to suggest that God does mean things to people. But I am wanting us to see and to consider the life of Mary and even the call of Christmas. That this very first Christmas, God called Mary to offer up everything. Her body, her relationships, her social status, her family, her future, so that the Savior of the world could be born. So what might he ask of you? What might he ask of you? If he can ask this of Mary, why would you suppose he could ask nothing of you? In all fairness, if he can put this on a 13-year-old girl, what can he not ask of you? What hardship could he not call you through? What difficulty could he not put on your plate so that you could walk through it with a great hope. There's no end to the application of that, friends. There's no end to it. Our sovereign God, whom we call Lord, who saved us from our sins, in His divine plan and in His divine sovereignty, could put anything He wills in front of us. No part of this was about Mary's comfort, was it? No part of it was it about her contentment. No part of it was about her happiness. No part of it was about how she would be seen or her, how she'd be perceived. It wasn't even a part of her witness. You know, there are probably people looking at her going, mm, see, terrible witness. What could God ask you to walk through? What burden could he put before you? See, this is the call of Christmas. That we would take our entire lives and we'd submit it all. And we'd say, Jesus, take it all. Romans 12.1 says, I appear to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. This is Paul writing in Romans, a great case that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that sin separates us, but God in whom there's no condemnation, in whom everyone who claims the name of Jesus can be completely forgiven at the height of his argument of salvation, tells us in view of everything that Jesus has done for us, 
to render ourselves as a sacrifice. And that that's worship. That like Mary, we could look to the heavens and say, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I have prayed over this text all week. I don't know how it applies to you. I don't know what's before you as if this could be an encouragement to you because you're walking through something difficult and you're not sure why and somehow in the midst of this you'd get a sense that you're not alone. And somehow you might get a sense that it hasn't happened to you because God doesn't like you, but possibly that God likes you and loves you and has a great plan to reveal himself through you as you suffer pointing to a great hope. In the first Christmas, God asked Mary to offer up everything. What might he ask of you? A couple of quick questions as we finish. Who should you be inviting into your life? Who should you be inviting into your house? Who should you be forgiving? Who should you be seeking for forgiveness? Where should you go? And whom should you invite? Friends, as we process our lives, all of us, and you should know always, when I say all of us, it's because I'm thinking of me. I'm thinking of the sin in my life, of the opportunities that I blow, of the people in my life that I should be pursuing, but because of sin in my own heart, I go, eh, somebody else. That God would call us to surrender everything and to pursue people. You know that statistically right now, I said this last year, and it's more true this year than it was last year. You know statistically, the average unbeliever is more willing to accept an invitation to church during the Christmas season than any other time of the year. Statistically suggesting that the more you engage people in your life and invite them in, that they'll accept your invitation. Now, it may take a while. It may take you walking across the street and approaching your neighbor and saying, hey, I know we've lived across the street for a while, but I love you. Would you come to our house for dinner? And the first time, they're probably going to look at you like you're crazy. And that's okay. Mary gave up her body. You get to feel weird. Andy Stanley taught a couple of years ago three things to listen to for. Somebody asked me this. I was telling somebody this the other day. I wanted to include it again. Three things to listen for that should always trigger an invitation into your life or into your church. You ever hear somebody say, I've not been in church in a while? That should trigger an idea in us. Hey, I should invite you into my life. If somebody says, things are not going well, that should, inv that should be a trigger to invite them into your life. Or if somebody says, I was not prepared for that, that should be a trigger for us to invite people into our lives. 
Friends, this Advent season is about an intentional season of looking at Jesus Christ, celebrating His birth, and preparing for His second coming. And it's a call to all of us to surrender ourselves to Him fully and completely. What might He ask of you? Let me pray. Gracious Father, You are always good. Even when you put hard things before your people. Even when you put the unfathomable before your people. Whether it comes from an angel or a doctor or a relative. Father, you put unfathomable things before your people. Why? Because with our lives we proclaim a great hope. We proclaim Jesus. The one who forgives us. The one who redeems us. The one who's working out our salvation. The one who's working in and through us. The one who gives us and is our hope. Father, this season, would you call us into your word? Would you call us into your son? Would you call us into the body? Father, that we would be reminded like Mary that you don't put challenging things in front of people you don't like. You do it in front of people you love and who you promise to be with. May we cling to that this season. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your obedience. In your name we pray. Amen.